coming up on Omnivore, a conversation with former FDA Commissioner Frank Giannis about the recent Netflix documentary, Poison, and the environmental upside of bio-derived polymers for food packaging. It's all ahead on episode 22 of Omnivore, from the editors of Food Technology Magazine and the Institute of Food Technologists. This episode of Omnivore is brought to you by IFT's new Product Development Bootcamp, a comprehensive 10-module online course designed to equip food and beverage professionals with the knowledge and skills necessary to elevate and accelerate product development. Learn more at ift.org bootcamp. Welcome to Omnivore from IFT and Food Technology, where we explore the intersection of business, science, and technology in the global food system. I'm Bill McDowell. For a few days in August, the Netflix film Poison, the Dirty Truth About Your Food became the most watched documentary in the world and created a ripple effect of consumer anxiety and confusion about the safety of the U.S. food system. It also unleashed a storm of frustration among food professionals who felt that decades-long efforts to improve and fortify food safety protections were either under or misrepresented by the filmmakers. One expert interviewed for Poison was Frank Giannis, the former Deputy Commissioner for Food Policy and Response at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Although Giannis sat for a lengthy interview with the filmmakers, he says much of what he said landed on the cutting room floor. I recently asked him what he thought of the final documentary and what he wishes had made the final cut. Commissioner, thanks for coming on the podcast today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. This documentary really seems to have struck a nerve for a lot of people in the food community even to the point where some people are questioning why you agreed to participate in this in the first place. Talk a little bit about why you agreed to participate, what you hope to accomplish. You know, when I was at FDA and the request to participate in the documentary came in, uh, we had discussions and actually debate within FDA. Should we participate or should we not participate? But uh, Bill, I felt very strongly that FDA should participate, and I personally wanted to sit in front of the cameras and answer the tough questions. We knew the questions would be tough. After all, FDA had come under a lot of criticism for what it was doing in the area of food safety. But quite frankly, and pretty directly, it was out of principle. You know, I firmly believe that if you're a government official, if you work for the public, uh, which I did, you have an obligation to answer the hard questions. So have you been surprised at all by the reaction and the buzz around poisoned, whether positive or negative? You know, not really. Uh, It has evoked very strong reactions and very strong emotions among all stakeholders. Uh, But that's not surprising to me, Bill, if you pause to think about it. Food is something that we all have in common. Uh, Consumers are pretty savvy these days. They want to know more about their food and where it comes from. So I was not surprised. You talk to Netflix officials, and if you looked at how the documentary did, it reached the top 10 pretty quickly. It was there for a while. So it it did pretty well worldwide. Uh, And then on the flip side of that, food producers in particular were uh, pretty strongly moved by it because they felt it didn't accurately portray all of the efforts that they have underway to try to prevent foodborne illnesses from happening. So we live in such a polarized society 
Uh, I, I wasn't surprised that it evoked strong emotions from stakeholders across the entire food continuum. A lot of what you said didn't make the final cut, but your overall reaction to the film seemed pretty nuanced. So break down what you think the producers got right and what opportunities were missed. What do you regret was not included in the final cut? If you're going to sit down in front of cameras for a documentary like this, we know the nature of the beast. Most of what you say ends up on the cutting room floor. And so you just go into that expecting it. And I'm not upset uh, nor surprised about that. Uh, I am happy that I got to participate. Uh, and there was so much to like about the Poison documentary. You know, the things that I liked was that uh, they put a very strong spotlight on food safety. And I've often said publicly that, you know, in my view, philosophically, one foodborne illness is one too many. Bill, I've had to talk to victims and uh, individuals that have experienced uh, tragic consequences or lost loved ones due to foodborne illnesses. And the 48 million Americans, people tend to get lost in that statistics. Behind every one of those numbers, I like to say there's a face uh, and real risk and real consequences. So, you know, that's a real positive that the movie brings forth in putting food safety in the spotlight. Uh, I also... Unlike some folks that don't like to hear this, I, I like that they said, hey, the progress on against foodborne disease has stalled. If you look at the true incidence rates of foodborne disease per 100,000 population in the United States, by pathogen, we haven't made much progress in almost two decades, Bill. Almost two decades. The numbers suggest that a lot of activity, a lot of work, a lot of taxpayer dollars, but we're really not making a significant reduction in or, or bending the curve of foodborne disease. So all of that was positive. And if, you, if you're concerned about food safety and public health, you have to applaud the movie for doing that. But having stated that for everything it got right, you know, there are things that I wish would have been included. And in particular, I wish, Bill, it would have been a little bit more balanced in the perspective on the progress that has been made. If you look at foodborne disease statistics over time, uh, we've made dramatic improvements compared to the early part of the 20th century and even throughout the 20th century. So I wish it would have just offered a little bit more perspective that we've made tremendous progress. I also wish it would have talked more about solutions. I wish they would have talked a little bit about the need for more modern approaches, more modern regulations, something that I tried to lead when I was at the agency under the auspices of a new era of smarter food safety. It's not just about working hard. It's not just about activities. It's ultimately about better outcomes. Uh, I also uh, proposed this idea that we need a single food safety agency, that our regulatory system is very fragmented and distributed. And so I, I wish they would have done a little bit more on the balance. And then the other thing I've heard uh, from stakeholders by and large is that there are a lot of people that are trying to do good, whether they're in the private sector, state and local regulators, Federal employees, they wake up every day, Bill, and you know one of their life's mission is to protect others. One of the critiques about documentaries like this and projects like this is that they simply serve to reinforce preconceived notions that people may have. What's the biggest misunderstanding or misperception that you think that the public still has about food safety? increasingly and very unfortunately in society today, so many issues have become polarized. Unfortunately and sadly, Bill, I think it's true in food. But I, I think 
for us to do a better job, we, we have to pause and realize, hey, I think today's consumer is very savvy. Don't underestimate that. I saw that when I was working at retail. You know, in the early 2000s, consumers wanted great value in their food products. And when I left retail in 2018, Bill, uh, today's consumer was very interested in more than just great value. They wanted to know more about their food. Where did it come from? How was it produced? Was it sustainably grown? But we also have this dilemma of just the time that we live in. We all know the statistics, you know, reaching nine and a half billion, soon 10 billion people. And this idea that never before in human history have so many people on the planet depended on so few for their food. You think about 100 years ago or 200 years ago, everybody on the planet would have been very closely linked to food or food production, maybe right even in their backyard. And so people are very far removed for food production. And these so many have strong opinions about how the so few should be producing their food. So I always tell food producers that we and stakeholders at all levels that we have an obligation to provide education, knowledge, and skills to people on how food is produced, why it's produced that way, and how it's grown. But I think that's one of the communication gaps is that humans, uh, because of the time and era in which they're living in, are so far removed from food production, they don't have that intimate knowledge. So we have an obligation to continue to educate and to promote what I call food literacy. What do you think is the most pressing or lingering food safety challenge that we've yet to crack? I personally think of two remaining challenges uh, among several, but the two that I would mention is produce safety. We want Americans to eat more produce. Clearly, produce is such an important part of an overall healthy diet. And by and large, there's a lot of produce consumed daily in our country, and it's uh, produced and consumed safely. Unfortunately, when the foodborne outbreaks have happened, uh, they've too often been linked to produce. And we all know why these products are grown outside. They're not subject to a final cook step or thermal inactivation. And so, you know, we've conquered and, and made progress on a lot of things like seafood has, meat and poultry has, although there's progress to make. Um, canning, food safety modernization, but produce safety is one of those last frontiers. And while by and large, when people eat produce, it's generally a, a safe uh and, and nice experience, uh, I think that we need to do further work to uh, continue to drive the incidence of pathogens down uh, on illnesses attributed to these products. The second one, Bill, for me is, I think we're entering a different era of increased chemical safety concerns. When we think about food safety risks, we think about what we call all hazards that could be microbiological, that could be chemical, that could be physical. And rightfully so, because so much of uh, foodborne concerns are biological in nature, pathogens such as salmonella, listeria, e. coli. We've been laser focused on that uh, as a society for decades. Uh, but I think increasingly with our ability to detect trace levels of chemicals, with the science evolving and us understanding potential toxicological effects on the human body, uh, we're gonna see a new era emerge here where we're going to increasingly hear about chemical contaminants in the food supply and whether we should be worried about them or not. And so I think those are two big final frontiers, produce food safety and trace levels of naturally or unnaturally occurring chemicals. You referred earlier to 
what's been a long time discussion and call for a single food agency. Well, it used to irk me when people use the pizza example, but uh, if you talk about the consequences of it, I think the example actually is a little bit more satisfying. And let's pretend you're looking at a frozen pizza that has cheese and pepperonis on it. The mere fact that it has a meat product on it, pepperoni, means that that product under our current framework is regulated by USDA. USDA would subject that pizza to what they call continuous inspection. Some at USDA would say, well, Frank, it's not really continuous. We'll have to look at it at least once a day, but that in essence is almost continuous inspection. If you simply remove the pepperonis and there's no meat on that pizza now, it's a cheese pizza and it's regulated by the FDA. It would be regulated by FDA under a classification system that they use called high-risk or non-high-risk foods as a non-high-risk food. And FDA would get to that facility, hopefully, hopefully, once every five years. So just look at the difference there. Daily inspections versus once every five years. And then I like to say, well, think of something that's even more critical than that, infant formula. We've just gone through a national crisis with it. That product is regulated by the FDA. And at best... FDA would inspect an infant formula facility once a year. So if you look at these three examples, clearly it illustrates that the decisions, the risk management decisions that are being made are not based on science, they're not based on data, and that we can do better of that. No single modernized country that I have reviewed or talked to approaches food safety the way we're doing it here in the U.S., so this isn't necessarily just about who inspects what, Bill, but it's really about how do we best regulate food in our country? How do we best use science and data to make these types of decisions? And how do we most effectively protect the American consumer? So I learned a long time ago in the private sector, this idea that strategy precedes structure. Strategy precedes structure. It's a pretty simple idea. Whenever I state this publicly, people nod. Of course it does. But if you look at what we're doing here, clearly there isn't a unified, uniform strategy to ensure safe food. And if we all believe, and I don't think you can find too many people that would disagree with that idea, then you say, well, how do you put the right structure in place? to effectuate that type of change. Some have been talking about this for a long time. This isn't a novel idea. Other presidents have, uh, by the way, by both political parties uh, proposed this. Uh, we have congressional leaders that are in existence today there that have proposed this many times. The GAO has done the same thing. Uh, I think quite frankly, um, some of the barriers are we got to put politics and turf battles aside. I mean, the reality is uh, to cause this to happen, you know, it could mean that employees and facilities and institutions have to move locations from one state to another. And, you know, there's political turf battles that happen, unfortunately, we all know too well. So I think the biggest barriers are politics, turf battles, and uh, how difficult it was going to is going to be. If you're going to try to do this quickly, it's going to always be made met with resistance. But if we could put together a long term plan. I've subscribed based on experiences I've had with some great organizations that when you have a long-term hard project, you just have to break it down into achievable components or steps. And if we do that, we can do this as a nation. You know, it might take us four years or five years to get it done, but it can be done. And uh, I'm going to continue to advocate uh, that, that, in fact, uh, we start moving in this direction. So let's close out here by just bringing it back to poisoned for a minute. 
um, after having gone through the experience of participating in the documentary, seeing what the what the uh, reaction was, what would be your hope for the best, most positive outcome that could happen from this documentary? Yeah, well, if you haven't seen the documentary, I would encourage you to go out and view it and encourage others to view it because it does put a spotlight on this troubling aspect of today's modern food system. But to me, the proof is in the pudding. I like to say what we believe and what we know is important, but they're not what matters most. Uh, It's what we do. And so I hope that uh, it results ultimately, the bottom line, Bill, is in a safer food system in that it mobilizes people to action. It mobilizes people to want to collaborate. It mobilizes us to take more progressive and modern approaches to food safety saying, well, listen, it exposed that there's still problems out there and what we're doing is not good enough. So we're going to have to do differently. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing and expecting to get different results in that, you know, at the end of the day, we can look back and say it was a significant milestone event that, uh, spurred the nation uh, to change and that we can look back, I hope after 10 years and see reductions in the burden of foodborne disease, reductions in the incidence of pathogens, and that we don't go yet a third decade with foodborne disease staying what is referred to now fairly flat, and that we ultimately bend that curve of foodborne illness and improve the quality of life for consumers around the world. Frank Giannis served as Deputy Commissioner for Food Policy and Response at the U.S. FDA from 2018 to 2022, and previously in senior food safety and policy roles at Walmart and Disney. You can read more about his thoughts about the Poison documentary at IFT.org and in the October issue of Food Technology. We'll be back with more Omnivore in a moment. But first, this word from our sponsor. Introducing IFT's Product Development Bootcamp, a comprehensive 10-module online course designed to equip food and beverage professionals with the knowledge and skills necessary to elevate and accelerate product development. Whether you're new to product development or need a refresh on the basics, IFT's Product Development Bootcamp offers a wealth of valuable insights, practical strategies, and real-world examples to take your product development to the next level. Learn more at ift.org bootcamp. Welcome back to Omnivore. I'm Bill McDowell. There's growing concern about the environmental impact of plastic used in food packaging both for the resources needed to construct the packaging, as well as the resources needed to dispose of it. Five bio-derived polymers are growing in popularity for use in food packaging, largely because they are drop-in solutions that can be substituted for the fossil-driven versions of polymers currently in use. Food Technologies' Emily Little spoke with contributing editor and packaging expert Claire Sand, about why these bio-derived polymers could be game changers. Claire, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about bio-derived plastics. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So for maybe our not-so-scientific audience, can you explain what bio-derived plastics are? 
Yeah, it's there's a actually it's a fun way to explain it. Uh, there's only two ways we can get packaging materials when we just take a step back and we think about it because we're not harvesting materials from Mars or the air or anything. So basically, we can get things from on top of the Earth, which we live on, or underneath it. So fossil-derived polymers are things we dig up um, from, as they say, dinosaur bones, and um, that's from inside the Earth. Bio-derived polymers are basically from uh, things that we grow on top of the Earth. Could be agricultural waste, uh, could be uh, corn that we that we harvest, uh, and also could be um, from trees. Can you give a couple more examples of these kind of plastics we might see in the market? Yeah, so um, there's there's actually two groups. The one that we see most prevalently now, and sometimes uh, we don't even know that it's there. So uh, it's polyethylene terephthalate, which is what we commonly associate it with water bottles. But in 2009, Coca-Cola developed uh, the plant bottle which many of us saw, and that was 30% bio-derived PET. Now, or as of October 2021, we can have 100% bio-derived PET. So the the same PET that we think of as our water bottles, you know, the the clear water bottles that we buy, can now be uh, bio-derived. So that's pretty cool. And that's part of the group that we call drop-in Um bio-derived polymers. And then there's two more within that group, and it's bio-derived polyethylene and bio-derived polypropylene. So these are the basic, those are both polyolefins, both carbons and hydrogens, both simple polymers. And those are derived from sugarcane or agricultural waste, just like ethanol is derived from, from corn. We can derive ethylene and then make polyethylene. And so it's uh it's pretty cool. Um, so those are those are in the group called bio-derived drop-in polymers. And the reason we call them drop-ins is that we can just do a quick substitution. They're exactly the same as their fossil-derived uh, alternatives. That's so cool that you can just drop it in. There's no huge processing change. And brands and companies are super excited about it. The other one that we don't think about, and what I think is neat about this podcast is it's with the food industry, is starch. So we've been using starch in polymers as a filler uh, in things like polyethylene terephthalate, the, the water bottles, and in like ketchup bottles and, and things like that for a number of years because it's a filler. And sometimes we don't need the entire thickness in terms of a barrier to oxygen or water vapor, but we need it for structural integrity to make that bottle kind of strong. So we use starch as a, as a filler, and starch is, of course, bio-derived, and it's um, quite inexpensive. And um, so that's another means of bio-deriving um, or using bio-derived sources uh, within polymers. And a lot of bottles are contain between, let's say, 10 and 20 percent uh, starch now. So they are, in fact, they contain bio-derived components. What makes these bio-derived polymers favorable specifically for food packaging? Well, there's, there's basically four reasons. Um, the number one thing is they're effective. 
right? So just like you said, well, that's super cool. We can just switch them in, right? You can just mm -hmm. switch from fossil-derived polyethylene to, to bio-derived polyethylene. So they're effective. So we've been, uh, and many of us in the packaging industry, we've seen bio-derived polymers, and, and there's a there's a whole um, field of, of waste of, of all of these things <laughs> being created, and, and gosh, the oxygen barrier is just horrid, and and so many of us in the industry are a bit uh, shy, even looking at the field of bio-derived polymers, but finally, the science is there. Super smart people, scientists and engineers in, in the conversion process and, and things like that, so they're effective is number one reason. The other reason that that a lot of brands are really interested is oil prices are up. Um, oil prices are also fluctuating quite heavily for a lot of different reasons. And that makes bio-derived polymers much more cost-effective. The other thing is that consumers really are starting to dislike plastics from oil. And so this addresses the issue. But I think the last reason is the most important. So when we do the life cycle analysis or measure the life cycle impact of packaging, we find that 95% of the packaging is impact is where we source it from. So if we source from the earth, like on top of the earth in a renewable manner versus digging out fossil fuels, not so renewable, the life cycle impact is, is quite a bit lower. So mm -hmm. that is the number one reason. And and there's some super cool technologies like we can use lignin, which is removed uh, when we make paper in, in the packaging industry or even office paper. And we can use that as a, as a feedstock to make bio-derived polymers. So we don't always have to do things like uh, grow corn to make plastic, which can be a bit callous, right? Mm -hmm. But we can take agricultural waste or or byproducts from other packaging making processes and and use those. So those are the top top four reasons. It's so interesting that you brought up the upcycling of ingredients, but also you know mitigating costs and being more cost effective. Those are trends I see in the ingredient side. So I'm not surprised that they've mm -hmm. made their way to packaging as well. I saw that about lignin. I thought, oh boy, that's super cool. That's a that's a huge game changer. Because um, I think one of the things that's been holding back the industry is it is a bit callous to to grow food and then make polymers out of them when we have people who are food insecure. So this avoids that. And so I'm a big fan of bio derived polymers that are from agricultural waste. And um, it's perhaps not the level of upcycling. So these aren't things that we would normally consume. So for for example, grape stems or uh, things like that. So it's not inherently food. Like we would never use lignin to make paper. We, we take it out. So, well, gosh, let's use it as something else. The, the impetus is really there. And so it's, it's moving fast in a number of different areas, one of those being food packaging. What are the challenges right now in this market? Oh, well, I think the stigma is one of them. Consumers, people say, I'm not sure, I haven't actually seen data on it, are not fans of plastic, right? And trying to explain it to consumers in, in a meaningful way that 
hey, it's 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 like it's it's bio derived polymers, you know, and and we can recycle them, and you know, and it's part of the circular economy and and things like that. That's a really hard thing to explain, uh, and so getting that language correct with consumers is critical to the field. Um, and I think, I think that will happen. The other thing is connected to that is we've seen a lot of retailers and consumers and, and NGOs and material recycling facilities or MRFs really advocate for more sustainability. Right. And so we've seen like, you know, a reusable or recyclable or, or things like that as part of their goals. But now we need to have bio-derived on there, not biodegradable polymers, but bio-derived polymers on, on kind of the checkoff list. And so I think one of the things we do in industry is really build the business case for these types of bio-derived polymers. And then I think, I think the big thing that in this industry, and I and I think we're addressing this really well with the bio-derived polymers, is that we can link them with other big trends that we're seeing in industry. So it's not just, hey, we're bio-derived, which is a great value proposition, but we can do things like, well, design for recycle, add some intelligent packaging in, uh, use better barriers. That's a a big game changer in packaging. Um, and then, you know, reduce, reduce the amount of packaging that you use uh, or reduce the amount of chemicals that you use in packaging. So we can kind of tag on those big trends that we're seeing. And so I think that would really help to kind of get a, a plan forward and, and address the challenges. Mm-hmm. Well, Claire, thank you so much for talking to me about this packaging and I look forward to talking to you soon. Cool. Claire Sand is CEO of the consulting firm Packaging Technology and Research and a contributing editor of Food Technology. You can read more from Claire about bioderived polymers in our October issue. This episode of Omnivore has been sponsored by IFT's new Product Development Bootcamp a comprehensive 10-module online course designed to equip food and beverage professionals with the knowledge and skills necessary to elevate and accelerate product development. Learn more at ift.org bootcamp. And that wraps up this episode of Omnivore. Thanks again to all our guests and my colleagues at Food Technology. Omnivore is produced and distributed by the Institute of Food Technologists, If you enjoyed today's show and want to learn more about Food Technology Magazine or how to join the conversation by becoming an IFT member, visit ift.org slash membership. For more in-depth discussion about innovation in the science of food, check out IFT's other podcast, SciDish, on the news and publications page of ift.org. If you have comments or suggestions for future shows, just send us an email. The address is editors at ift.org. For the entire team at Food Technology and IFT, I'm Bill McDowell. Thanks for listening, and join us again for our next episode. This is Omnivore.